Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So like CT said, we are in a series called Unqualified. And this series is all about how God uses broken people to do big things. And throughout the series, we're actually taking real people from the Bible, people that were broken and sinful and messed up and unqualified, and we're seeing how God still chooses them to do big things, and how God, through them, is able to make a huge impact on his church and on the kingdom of God. And so today, as we continue the series, we're actually going to be talking about a woman named Esther. But before I begin, I want to acknowledge that today is Mother's Day. For a very long time, Mother's Day was one of the highest attended Sundays in church. It would go Easter, then Christmas, then Mother's Day. But in the last five years, church plants, like us, have actually seen Mother's Day attendance drop, and the day tends to to look like a normal Sunday. And this isn't because moms love Jesus less than they did five years ago. But this is because Mother's Day, while a day to celebrate, also brings heartache for many people. And so Mother's Day is complex, and there are a range of emotions that are felt today. So before we begin talking about Esther, there's a poem that I would like to read that I believe says more in a few lines than I could say in an entire sermon. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate you. To those who lost the child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility fraught with pokes and prods and tears, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have a warm relationship and a close relationship with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who have lost their mothers, we grieve with you. To those who experience abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who live through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own child, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you long for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who will have emptier nests in this upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those of you who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. And so this Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst, and we remember you. So before we begin, let's pray. God, we know that that today is a day to celebrate, but God, that so many of us feel pain. So many of us have experienced loss or brokenness, and this day tends to be a day that that reminds us of that. And so God, for everybody here that that feels that that weird dichotomy of joy and sorrow, and excitement and pain, God. Um, let us be a church that recognizes that and cares for that and loves that. God, thank you for this group of people and their willingness to be here today. Um, it's not easy. Um, and God, I just pray as a group of people that we are aware um, that while it is really good to celebrate moms, 
sometimes there's pain involved. God, help us be aware of that. Help us show empathy and help us show love. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So let's talk about Esther. So Esther is a book in the Old Testament that focuses on Esther, who is a Hebrew woman. And while Esther is the main character, there are actually many other people that play a major role in her life. In fact, Esther isn't even mentioned in the first chapter of her own book. Instead, it starts by talking about a king named Xerxes. So today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share uh, about half of the story with you, and I'm going to go back and forth between paraphrasing and reading what was written. And so chapter one begins with King Xerxes, and he's throwing a party. And it's an awesome party because the party lasts for 180 days. And here are the rules. There are no rules. Anything goes. And then for some of you, if you've heard that, that name Xerxes sounds familiar, that's because he's a real guy. Most of you would remember him from the movie 300. This is King Xerxes. <laughs> I can't tell if that's intimidating or not. Like, is that scary? I don't know. Uh, but Xerxes was the king of the Persian Empire, which is considered to be the most powerful of the ancient powers. During his time of rule, it stretched over 2.9 million square miles and spanned three continents. It is estimated that the Persian Empire had over 50 million people living under its control, which at that time was 44% of the known population. Xerxes was a king in a long dynasty of kings. He came from famous bloodlines, and his grandfather was Cyrus the Great. And this is all stuff, if this sounds familiar, you learned it probably around the time you were in eighth grade. Some of you are like, I don't remember that. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Xerxes was so powerful and so intimidating that they didn't just consider him a king. The Persians thought he was a god. And because of that, they treated him that way. Anything he says goes. Anything he has an opinion on, he is right. Anything he wants, he gets. The one rule is that no one tells Xerxes no. And so after six months, this party ends, and King Xerxes decides to throw another party for just him and his friends. And some of you are thinking right now, this is your favorite book of the Bible. <laughs> just wait. Seven days into the second party, he's drunk out of his mind, and he gets a really good idea. He sends a messenger to his wife, who is having a party with all of her friends, and the messenger is actually supposed to bring her back so that she can dance for the king and her buddies while just wearing a crown. And because Xerxes wants everyone to know just how beautiful his wife is. And remember, there's one rule in the kingdom, don't tell Xerxes no. But his wife isn't having it. She sends a message back to the king telling him no. And she says, I will not come dance for you, I'm not going to do this. So King Xerxes has a meeting with all of his friends. Mind you, they've been partying for now 187 days at this point. And he asks his friends, what should I do? And in Esther 1.16, this is what it says. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. This guy is essentially saying she has dishonored 50 million people. But he continues, For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will, be, they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. Translation, you have to do something or our wives will find out that we can say no to them. So, of course, these advisors are freaking out. They continue to push. And they say, this very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about Queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. We don't want them telling us no. They said, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. Right now, the women are like, what is going on in this story? Just stick with it, I promise you. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. 
and this is the law, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes, and also let, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. And that's actually how the first chapter of Esther ends. We don't even hear about her. And the first chapter ends with King Xerxes, who is hammered, taking advice from his friends who are also hammered, and banishing his wife so she can never be in his presence again. Chapter 2 opens up with King Xerxes sobering up and realizing what he has done to the king. And he wakes up and he's like, I did what? Oh, crap. Well, I guess I need a new wife. So he gathers up, gathers up his buddies again because, of course, that was a good, a good idea the first time. But he gathers them up and he says, okay, I'm lonely. What should I do? And one of his attendants actually speaks up. And this is what he says in Esther 2, starting in verse 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who, ple- who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So what his attendant is essentially saying, you need to have a beauty pageant full of virgins and pick your favorite so that she can become queen. And I love how verse 4 ends where it says, the advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Well, duh. <laughs> so while this is going on, while the search begins for the most beautiful virgins in the Persian Empire, the story actually introduces us to a man named Mordecai. And Mordecai lives in this capital city. He lives in Susa. And he is in Susa because his great-great-grandfather was taken captive during the Babylonian Empire. And after the Jewish people had been held captive, captive, they were actually freed by the Persian Empire and allowed to go back home. But some men and women actually stayed and they decided, we're going to stay in the Persian Empire. We're actually not going to go back home to what is now Palestine. And Mordecai is one of those people. He decided he would stay And so while in Susa, he's actually raising the daughter of his uncle who had passed away. And then we get introduced to a girl named Esther. Esther is technically Mordecai's second cousin. But he's raising her like a daughter because Esther's parents had died. But this is where the story starts to get a little bit weird. Mordecai believes that Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So he actually signs her up for this beauty pageant, which is messed up on so many levels. And I promise we'll get to that point. But there's one more thing. Right before Esther heads off to the king's palace, right before she gets introduced to these uh, 12 months of, of beauty rituals, Mordecai tells her, no matter what you do, don't tell him that you're Jewish. And it wasn't because King Xerxes hated the Jewish people, but he had his own desires and his own religion, and people thought he was a god. So her goal was not to tell him that, hey, I worship another god. And so over the next 12 months, Esther and a group of other women go through rounds of beauty treatments. When the 12 months is up, the virgins are called in one at a time to spend the night with the king to audition to become queen. In the morning, the women who didn't make queen are put into a different group of women called concubines, which translates as mistresses. And this is where they would remain for the rest of their life. And this is the situation that Mordecai put Esther in. She had one chance to become queen. And if she failed, she'd be in slavery for the rest of her life. And so, let's continue the story. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So she won. And that's actually how chapter 2 ends, with Esther being made queen. 
Chapter 3 is when things start to get good. Where we finally meet the villain of the story. It's not Xerxes. It's a man named Haman. And he's one of Xerxes' advisors who's been working himself up through the ranks. And we actually learn in chapter 3 that he gets a really big promotion. And this makes him so important that there is a law that when he walks through town, everyone has to bow down to him and tell him how awesome he is. And Haman, who has a huge ego, walks around town a lot because he likes to see people bow down to him. And so as he walks through town, everyone bows down. Everyone tells him how incredible he is. Everybody tells him how awesome he is, except for one guy, Mordecai. Because Mordecai will only bow down to God. And this drives Haman crazy. And not crazy like, I'm so mad. He actually starts to lose his mind. So much so that he actually wants Mordecai to die. But he doesn't end there. He actually takes it to the next level and adds an extra measure of crazy. And says that not only do I want Mordecai to die, I want his whole family to die. And he takes it one step further and says, you know what? Not just the family. I want his entire race to die. And so Haman decides that he wants all Jewish people living in Persia to die because of Mordecai and his unwillingness to bow down. And so he went to King Xerxes to ask for authority to massacre the Jewish people. And then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from, all, from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king or the king's laws. It is not the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. And like I said, Haman is a villain. And he sells it to King Xerxes by saying, there are these people who are everywhere throughout your kingdom, and they don't listen to your laws. They don't obey your laws. They don't look at you as God. And Haman says, I'm just looking out for you, but I think it's in your best interest to destroy them. And he takes it a step further. He says, I'm so, I'm, I care for you so much, and I love you so much that I'll actually pay for it out of my own pocket because I'm just a good guy. So Haman's desire is to pay the kingdom to destroy the Jewish people. And King Xerxes is like, awesome, thanks, do what you please. And you know what? Keep your money because I don't know any Jewish people except the woman that he's married to, who at that point still hadn't told him that, he, that she was Jewish. And so the king, who is pretty sure he doesn't know any Jewish people, signs the new law. On this day of this month, you're allowed to kill any Jewish person you wish, and take their stuff. And Haman is happy because he can finally punish Mordecai. And that's how chapter 3 ends. Chapter 4 begins with Mordecai and the Jewish people finding out about the upcoming massacre. They are distraught and they actually go into a season of fasting and weeping in hopes that God will intervene. And during that time, Esther actually finds out about Mordecai's distress and sends a messenger to find out what is going on because at that point she still didn't have a clue that that law had been written. And so the messenger talks to Mordecai and returns to tell Esther about Haman's law and to beg her to go to Xerxes and convince him to change his mind. But Esther actually sends word back saying, the king thinks he is a god. You don't change his mind. If I even knock on his door and enter his room without permission, I'll get the death penalty. Nobody goes and sees the king unless they are invited, and he hasn't asked for me in 30 days. I just can't do it. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your, fam- your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And there's actually a lot more to the story of Esther, but we're actually going to pause here for a quick moment. Now, some of you grew up in church, and you've heard this story before. Probably a more PG version, but here's the actual story of Esther in one paragraph. There's a Jewish man named Mordecai who pimps out his underage cousin to have beauty pageant sex with the king. And if she does a good job, she'll become queen. But if she loses, she'll be a sex slave for the rest of her life. Luckily, she wins. And even though the Jewish people haven't thought about God or even consulted God in the whole process, when things get bad and Haman convinces the king to execute all the Jews, they run back to God and they fast and they beg God to protect them. Now that's the real story. It's not really the version that you would hear growing up if you went to Sunday school. And if you've been to church your whole life, it's really easy to sanitize that story and ignore the situation that Esther has put in. I mean, truly think about it. She didn't want her parents to die. She didn't want to be queen. She certainly didn't want to be a sex slave or killed. She didn't want to put, have to put her own life on the line because of Haman's grudge with Mordecai. She didn't choose this life. This is not how she expected it to go. But there she was, standing in the palace with the opportunity to save the Jewish people. And she's hesitant, which makes sense. But she's hesitant because she thinks she's unqualified to save the Jewish people because she didn't choose to be in the position she was in. Because she didn't want to be a hero. She didn't even want to be a queen. This wasn't the life that she asked for. This wasn't the life that she dreamt of. This wasn't her desire. And we relate to that story because that feels true for so many of us. We believe that we're unqualified because our life doesn't look the way we expected or the way we hoped, or the way we planned it would be. See, throughout the story of Esther, bad stuff happened to her. Now, Esther wasn't perfect. She messed up too. But so much of the story of Esther is about brokenness that she didn't cause. And some of this is just the hardships of life, like like losing her parents. This wasn't because anything Esther did wrong. This wasn't because God wanted to force her into the situation. It was just a part of life, a reminder that our world is broken. But a lot of the bad stuff came at the hands of other people, whether it was Xerxes or Mordecai or Haman. Their sin created brokenness and pain for Esther. Their sin put her in a situation that she didn't want to be in. And in the story, all of this brokenness brought her to a fork in the road moment. And she had to come to a place where she asked herself, what am I going to do with my life from this point on? And this is real life. So many of you have experienced pain and brokenness that you didn't cause. Some of it we did cause, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks, about how God moves, moves to the brokenness that we cause in our own lives. But a lot of the brokenness that we experience come from other people. And to be honest, I know that's true because of my own life. Nobody can take a, a look at their whole life and think nobody has hurt me, right? That everybody in my life, that everybody in my family, that everybody in my school, that everybody at work every day treated me the right way. So we have to be honest about the past wrongs that are done to us. But there comes a point where we have to stop pointing the fingers at people. We have to stop saying, you shouldn't have done that, or that shouldn't have happened to me, or why did this happen to me? And this is also true for the brokenness we experience that nobody caused. The brokenness from the loss of a loved one, 
the brokenness from infertility, the brokenness from loneliness, whether our pain and brokenness come from others or just life sucking, we have to stop asking, why did this happen to me? And I'm not saying you shouldn't ask that question. You just can't get stuck there. I'm going to say that again. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask that question. I'm saying you just can't get stuck there. Because you're right. Your husband shouldn't have left you. Your friend shouldn't have betrayed you in that way. Your boss shouldn't have broken your trust. But if you get stuck there, your life is capped. And it's done. But you have to move on to a better question. And the question is not, why did this happen to me? It's, what am I going to do with my life from this point on? And again, I'm not saying don't ever ask, why did this happen to me? I'm just saying you need to be okay with the pain. Or, and I'm not saying you need to be okay with the pain that others have caused. You need to work through that, probably with counseling. But as a pastor, I often hear stories, and the number one question that always accompanies those stories is, why did that happen to me? But let's be honest. There is no big answer that will satisfy. And I'm not talking about the little stuff. I'm talking about cancer happening. I'm talking about not being able to get pregnant. I'm talking about losing a child. I'm talking about someone who committed their life to another person and that person breaking their promise. They ask, why did that happen? But let me ask you, is there any answer that I could give that would satisfy you now, that would make it feel okay? If Jesus himself stood in your living room and said, let me explain why that happened, would it make you feel better? If we're being honest, the answer is no. And so we ask, why did this happen to me? And it's a good question, but you can't get stuck there. The better question to ask is, what am I going to do with my life from this point on? I don't know why that happened, and I might not know until I stand in front of Jesus one day, and I still might not like it, but what am I going to do with my life from this point on? And this was the message that Mordecai was hoping that Esther would realize. When he reaches back out to her, he tells her, you have to do something. You can't just stand there. You can save us, but you have to do something. You, you can't just sit and go, why is this happening to me? You have to figure out what are you going to do next. And so that's why Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time. He's saying, so Esther, if your response is, I'm not going to do anything, I don't know what to do, I will die, I'm unqualified. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Mordecai is telling her, if you decide not to do this, God is still going to do what he wants to do. And here's the takeaway with that. If God decides he wants to do something, he will do it. And nobody can ruin or stop his plans, including pain that life has caused or the mistakes that other people have made to impact your life. And here's the other really important verse in the story of Esther. Mordecai actually calls out a really important thing that Esther has probably forgotten. And to be honest, we have probably forgotten when it comes to our own life. And this is probably the most famous verse in the book of Esther. And this is what Mordecai said. And who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. He's saying, hey, Esther, maybe the reason why you won that beauty contest, maybe the reason why the king listens to you, maybe all the things that you've gone through is for this moment in time because you are in a unique place to do what only someone in your position can do. You know, regardless of how you got there in your life, what are you going to do with your life from this point on? Listen, I'm not saying that you should be here. and I'm not saying that how you got there is good. Some of us are looking at our life right now and you're thinking, I don't like where I am. 
I don't like this life. This wasn't what I chose. This wasn't what I wanted when I was younger. But regardless of how you got there, what if where you are, and what if you, <laughs> sorry, what if you are where you are and you have what you have because of the things that have happened in your life? You didn't choose to be single. A lot of you didn't choose to be divorced. You didn't choose to be childless. You didn't choose to be sexually abused. You didn't choose to be betrayed by a friend. But God can still do big things through you, even if you are in a situation you didn't choose to be in. Because you are uniquely in a place to do something that only you can do. So what if God is saying, I want you to do that because nobody understands better than you? What if your whole life has been leading up to such a time as this? The good things, the bad things. And listen, I don't know your story, but if it's anything like mine, it probably includes a lot of brokenness, most of which I caused. But a lot was caused by other people in my life or just the hardships of life. And there are a thousand reasons why you shouldn't be where you are or have what you have or have what happened to you happen to you. So maybe you are uniquely in a place to help your friend through their divorce because you've been there. Maybe you are uniquely in a place to console your coworker after another negative pregnancy test because you know that heartache. Maybe you're uniquely in a place to encourage your children to love and care for their classmates because of the bullying you experienced in high school. Maybe you are uniquely in a place to do something that only you can do. Now let me save some time and spare you all writing me a bunch of emails or Facebook messages later. I'm not saying that everything that has happened in your life is God's will for your life. It's just not true. There are a lot of things that have happened in your life that were not God's plan or God's will. God's will for your life is that nobody will ever hurt you. God's will for your life is that nobody will ever sin against you. And so if this has happened to you, I'm not saying that this is God's will. What I'm saying is that God is there. And if you're in the middle of something right now, just look around because God is there. And God can use you in all of your pain and brokenness to do big things, whether you caused it or not. And we know this is true because of the story of Esther. You know, Esther could have sat there and thought, I'm unqualified to handle this situation because I didn't want to be here in the first place. This isn't the life I wanted. This isn't the life I planned for. Why did this happen to me? But instead, Esther asks herself, what am I going to do with my life from this point on? After her correspondence with Mordecai, she went to wait by the king's door, hoping that he would find favor. But Esther knew that if he opened the door and didn't want to see her, she would be killed. But there she stood. And when Xerxes opened the door, he saw Esther and realized how much he missed her. And he missed her so much that he told her that he would give her anything that she wanted. And so Esther did what Esther knew best, which was invite him to a party. And when that party ended, she actually threw him another party. And during the second party, King Xerxes asked her again, what can I do for you? I will give you anything. And that's when Esther asked Xerxes to spare her people. She told him that Haman's law was not only against her people, but against herself and her family. Xerxes would oblige and dissolve Haman's law and save the Jewish people, all because Esther was uniquely in a place to do something that only she could do. I'm going to wrap up with one story. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Mother's Day can be such a bittersweet day. 
In fact, some of my closest friends would tell you that today is a reminder of joy and pain. Three years ago today, two of my friends had their son pass away at 26 days old. And this was definitely not what they wanted for their life. It wasn't what they had hoped for. It wasn't what they deserved. They never asked to be the people who would experience the loss of a child. But for the last three years, they have navigated celebrating the life of their son, Sammy, while also experiencing grief. And sadly, they aren't the only friends that we have that have experienced child loss. I've shared this story a few weeks ago. This, this January, our friends Jay and Jess had their six-month-old, six-month-old son pass away, and they were devastated. As the news spread that baby James had passed away, I reached out to Jay, and for an, over an hour, he shared his favorite memories of James. He shared with me the pain that he was feeling. He shared with me the co- confusion about why he and Jess were going to go through this loss. But as the conversation drew to a close, I prayed for him, and I asked him if there was anything else that I could do. And through tears, he asked me a question that I didn't know how to answer. He asked me, what do I do now? How do I move forward? How do I live my life with this pain? And all I could do was apologize. I told him I was sorry, but I didn't know how to answer that question. But I did know some people who could help. When I got off the phone with Jay, the first thing I did was reach out to our friends who knew that pain. And all I said to him was that, I know you didn't ask to be the people who understand this pain. And I know you didn't ask to be the people who could answer questions about how to move forward after the loss of a child. But if you can, please reach out to Jay and Jess. And that's exactly what they did. Because they knew they were uniquely in a place to love Jay and Jess. And they could do that in a way that very few people really know how. So I don't know what you've experienced in your life. I don't know what's been done to you. I have no idea what life has thrown at you. I know that it's not easy. I know that it brings pain. I know that it brings brokenness. And so I want you to know this. God can still do big things through you, even if you're in a situation you didn't choose to be in. But it starts with us taking a step back and looking at our life and saying, maybe... Just maybe I'm in a situation for just a time as this. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that through our brokenness and our pain, through our sin, through our shortcomings, God, that you still want to use us to glorify you. God, that you still give us opportunities to love and care for people. God, I know so many of us have experienced pain that, come, that came at the hands of other people or honestly just came at the hands of a really tough life. Living is very hard. But God, we're so thankful for stories like this where we get to see Esther time and time again be treated poorly and abused by family and put in situations she didn't want to be in and yet, God, you still chose to use her. And she was able to save her entire people group. God, I pray today as we struggle with that pain, we struggle with that brokenness, we struggle with those people that have hurt hurt us, God, that honestly, we take a step toward forgiveness and we take a step toward wondering, what am I going to do with my life starting right now? God, because you put us in positions that we are uniquely made and uniquely able to love and care for people. We don't always see it, so God, we pray that you open up our eyes so that we can see it and be a part of that. 
God, thank you so much for choosing unqualified people. God, thank you so much for using us to glorify you and to make this place a better place. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.